0: So well, welcome back. Um, just before we sit, I'll talk a little bit about the, a little bit further about the context of meta practice. There are four practices that are traditionally taught together in a kind of bundle. Together, they're called the four Brahma Viharas. Brahma is a word that means. Um, Celestial or uh, supreme or heavenly. And one translation I heard of the word, which I liked a lot, was best. So Brahma can be considered best, and Vihara means dwelling or abiding or home. So taken together, these four qualities form our best home. They are first metta or loving kindness, and then the second of the brahma is the quality of compassion. Compassion is the, the literal translation of the word karuna, is um, the trembling or the quivering of the heart in response to pain or suffering. It means being open enough and present enough to recognize pain or suffering, and also having our hearts move in response to it. It's the trembling or the quivering of the heart. Uh, it's actually, as Thich Nhat Hanh said, because of that quality of the movement of the heart, compassion is actually a verb. It's an activity. The third quality is known as sympathetic joy, which is actively taking delight or having happiness in the happiness of others rather than when we see someone else's success or good fortune falling sway to that voice which arises in our heads so commonly that says ooh you know i would be happier if you just had a little bit less going for you right now you know <laughs> it's like you don't have to lose everything but you know if the light could dim just a little bit i would feel better and Sympathetic joy, um, you know, of course, is fa- uh, the opposite of sympathetic joy. That kind of envy or jealousy is um, founded on the conception, the, the concept that somehow happiness is a limited commodity in this world, and the more someone else has, the less there's going to be left over for us, and so we feel threatened. Sympathetic joy is the direct challenge to that so that we recognize, hey, someone else's happiness doesn't take something away from us, It actually can enrich our lives instead. And um, as the Dalai Lama once said, I think so sensibly, he said, it only makes sense to practice taking delight in the happiness of others because if you do that, then you increase your own chances of happiness six billion to one. (laughs) He said, those are very good odds. And I thought, hey, isn't that true? It's like you don't have to go out, you don't have to spend money, you know. <laughs> all you have to do is be happy for somebody else who's <laughs> going out and doing all those things. And there you are, you're happy. And then the last of the Brahma Viharas is the quality of equanimity, which means balance of mind. All of these states have what are traditionally called the far enemy and the near enemy. The far enemy is the state that's clearly the direct opposite. You know, you would never confuse it. It's like the far enemy of um, compassion is cruelty. The far enemy of metta is um, anger or fear. Anger and fear are the same mind state in Buddhist psychology. You know, it's aversion um, is the the cover term. So you wouldn't really confuse that. But the near enemy is a state where you might get confused. You know, it's close enough to the the of the Brahma Vihara so that it might masquerade as that but it's really very different and the, the far enemy of equanimity is reaction the near enemy is indifference and these, these near enemies are important to understand because it's important to understand kind of the subtle distinctions what makes a gift a freely given gift For example, Um, all of these are practices of generosity, you know, loving kindness and compassion and sympathetic joy. It's giving of our hearts. It's giving of our energy. It's giving of our presence. So what makes that a, a free gift? The near enemy of metta is attachment. It's what someone once described to me as metta with an edge. You know, like... I often teach loving-kindness retreats, and sometimes I'll run into somebody, say, in New York City afterwards, who'll say, hey, you know, I spent all week up in Barry, or all month up in Barry, sending metta to my friend, and I came out, and they're as bad off as they were before, you know, and I looked at them and I thought, I gave you a week, you know? Why aren't you better? You know, it's like that kind of quality. you know, it, it's, it's actually equanimity, which doesn't mean indifference. It means balance, which allows metta to be something freely offered. And so that's the important role of equanimity is it brings wisdom. It shines the light of wisdom on all of these qualities that we realize that we might and must and should try out of love, out of compassion, to help somebody. And at the same time, wisdom tells us that, sad to say, we're not in control of the unfolding of the universe. And the gift needs to be something that doesn't have so many strings attached and so many conditions so that we feel so bereft when it doesn't seem to work. We feel so impatient to have an immediate result. We feel so burnt out when we don't get exactly the result we think we should have. It's equanimity that actually opens us to the, if not the vision, then the sense of a bigger picture of life. Where it's really big. And we have ups and we have downs. That's the nature of things. It's not a sign of failure. And still, as a human being, it's our it's our utmost effort to live by and express these qualities of the heart. It's equanimity that actually allows them to be boundless. So go back to compassion, for example. Compassion is the trembling or the quivering of the heart in response to pain. The near enemy of compassion is, um, it's translated in different ways, but one translation of it is grief. And it doesn't mean that grief is a bad thing to feel. They're just saying that, there are times when it's not the movement of the heart to help somebody that is the primary force in a situation. It's our own pain. And, and then things become more about ourselves than about the other person. Or it might be that the pain is so debilitating for us that we don't have the energy. We just don't have the sheer energy to try to make a difference to anybody else. And that's not that helpful. Um, I was once, I was teaching with Joseph in what was then the Soviet Union, and we'd gone many years ago, um, kind of surreptitiously to teach, because it was illegal to do things like that. In fact, I was I was in the um, entryway of IMS the morning we were leaving, and somebody came up to me and said, I hope you keep what you're doing really quiet, because I have a friend who went off to Cuba to teach meditation, and he got arrested and ended up in jail. And I thought, thank you for the blessing, you know, <laughs> as I leave. Um, but we did. We kept it really quiet, and we were just going. We went as part of a tour group, and we never, ever went to see anything. Uh, but we'd go off to people's living rooms in the afternoons, and um, they would get a translator and just this group of people, and, and we would teach, and, I was speaking a lot about compassion and I noticed, which of course was all translated, and I noticed repeatedly that there was this very funny feeling in the room. So I finally sat down with the translator and I said, when I say compassion, what do you say? And he said, oh, I describe the state where it's like you're torn apart and you're just broken from the suffering. And, you know, and he said, it's like someone has taken a giant stake and driven it through your heart. And and I thought, no wonder (laughs) I'm getting this really funny feeling. You know, but sometimes we even romanticize that. We think, yes, we need to be broken by the suffering in order to really be uh, empathetic with somebody. But really, what do we have left to give in that time? And so, uh, it's in that sense that I understand the near enemy of compassion. It's not that the suffering doesn't hurt. Of course it does. And sometimes it is unbearable. But when we're really undone by it, then that's the truth of things. We're not in a position to to try to serve, to, to love, to, to try to make a difference. Um, and that's why equanimity is the... It's like the hidden ingredient in all of these three of... Loving kindness, compassion, and sympathetic joy. It said that equanimity endows loving kindness with patience. So we don't have that sense of be happy by tomorrow night, you know? We can let things unfold. It can be a more freely given gift of our energy. It said that equanimity endows compassion with courage because it's not easy to actually open to suffering and not be completely broken by it. We need some kind of perspective, some kind of balance that first tells us what we can do and what we can't do so that we don't feel responsible for life and controlling life in a way we never could. And it also tells us about the natural cycles, that in life there's pleasure and pain and gain and loss, and praise and blame, and fame and disrepute, and that's how it is. There is no one who is only going to feel pleasure and no pain. There is no one who is only going to experience praise and no blame. It's just how it is. Equanimity doesn't mean that we don't care or we don't notice, but it strengthens us with wisdom so that In a difficult situation, we can feel compassion, but with some balance. It's also said that equanimity allows sympathetic joy to even really exist, because of those four, of loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity, it's often taught that sympathetic joy tends to be the most difficult. Compassion, for example... Um, except in some cases, you know, which probably genuinely exist. But um, mostly compassion is a fairly natural response to seeing suffering. It's because we don't tune into the suffering of a situation, somebody else's suffering. You know, we're angry or we're hurt or we're afraid or we're busy, whatever it might be, that we actually don't see someone's situation as suffering. And then the compassion is hard to come by. But when we actually stop for a moment and we tune in on that level, it tends to be easier. And the same with ourselves. You know, if we're filled with anger, we're filled with jealousy, we're filled with fear, we're filled with greed, and we call those states bad or wrong or terrible, then we will naturally feel a kind of aversion toward them. If we see them as suffering, then we will more naturally feel a kind of compassion for ourselves. And so that's um, not as difficult as we might think. What's really key is being able to tune into the suffering. But sympathetic joy, to actually feel happy when someone else is happy, for many people is not all that easy. Some people seem to have a natural gift for it, which I think is just wonderful. (laughs) And we know from the other side of it what it's like, what that quality is like. You know, when something really good happens for you and some people are so happy for you and how great that feels. And other people, I mean, they might smile, (laughs) you know, and they might say, oh, congratulations, but you know, you know, they're not so pleased. And that hurts, you know, It really it takes away from our own joy. And so we know what that feels like, that quality. To actually take delight in someone else's happiness means really reevaluating our whole sense of life and what happiness is and where it can be found and feeling so separate and feeling so threatened. It really needs equanimity. It needs a kind of balance of mind to say, You know what? Life is this mixture of pleasure and pain and gain and loss and praise and blame and fame and disrepute. Do I really begrudge this person the happiness that they have? Do I want them to only suffer? And what good will that do me anyway? You know, equanimity is like the voice of wisdom that says this is how life is. So together, these four enrich each other quite a bit. Loving kindness allows us to pay attention. Compassion allows us to be sensitive to the suffering, the unhappiness. Sympathetic joy allows us to appreciate the joy in life. And equanimity will strengthen all of them. It's like what's really in there that allows them to be what they are. The question was about feeling sympathetic joy and at the same time (laughs) feeling some envy and not wanting them to lose what they have, but wanting some for oneself. And I think that's quite natural. You know, it's it's the moment when that crosses over into really wishing they didn't have what they had. Um, You know, that that becomes um, more of an obstacle to our own freedom. It's it's probably. A very natural reaction. I mean, why wouldn't we want what we want? Um, but the question becomes how much do we want it? You know, and what are the implications of wanting it? And what are we willing to reject in order to get it? And, you know, how competitive do we feel? And then, you know, and it's, it's that kind of sensitivity to our own state, which is really an interesting.
1: Yeah. Uh, I've heard. Um...
0: Sometimes it's it's been translated as that, and I I uh, um, I've also heard that, you know, and uh, I'm not sure it's as completely accurate, you know, as the other. Um, in the times that you know people say that pity is the near enemy of compassion, and they um, they talk about a, almost a kind of disdainful compassion you know it's like a sense of a hierarchy where there's some distance as though we would never experience what this other person is experiencing um, which is also uh, kind of ignorant because in fact you know life is as it is and and so to have this kind of solid sense of like I who am so great you know and coasting easy um, and looking with pity upon you who are way over there, you know, experiencing something that I won't, you know, is it's unrealistic. Uh, and so that, in that sense, you know, it could be considered the, like the near enemy of, of compassion. Um, and this, it's almost more, it's more of um, like a contemporary translation, which doesn't mean it's less accurate, but uh, I think that's a nuance that um, is maybe even more subtle, you know, than the kind of basic understanding of what it means to be overwhelmed by pain, as compared to meeting it.
1: How does uh, self pity? When I felt like instead of like looking at someone else's happiness, I feel a lot of self pity that I didn't get that. Mm-hmm. How does that? Or with um, the near enemy, far enemy,
0: or where is that coming from? Um, I think in, in terms of sympathetic joy, um, it's kind of more like the far enemy. It, it would be envy or jealousy or um, self-pity, you know, or, or something like that. The near enemy of sympathetic joy, I've heard a couple of different translations of that as well. Sometimes they talk about it as giddiness, Um, which means kind of being happy for no good reason, (laughs) you know, not based on seeing the happiness of someone else. And sometimes it's talked about as being comparing, just the comparing mind. Um, And it's interesting in the Buddhist psychology, comparing is considered an unskillful state of mind no matter what conclusion you draw when you look at the other person. It's it's so restless. You know, it's like uh, we use this example a lot in retreat. If you're sitting... There's no way to really know what someone else's experience is. And so we use these external and fairly meaningless measures in order to try to compare, you know, like uh, sitting without having to change posture. You know, so we use this example sometimes of like coming into a meditation hall after a walking period and you sit down and the person behind you moves and you think, oh, good. <laughs> you know
1: <laughs>
0: i 'm a much better meditator than they are, because you know i 'm sitting still and they 've moved, and it 's only ten minutes into the sitting and Then you think, well, wait a minute, you know they were sitting here when I came into the room, so maybe they sat the previous sitting and they sat all through the walking completely motionless, and they only moved ten minutes into the second sitting, so i 'm much worse than they are, you know, and then you kind of compare yourself to everyone around you and get a sense of a status report and then someone new comes in and you have to do it all over again. You know, and It's like a very restless state of mind. Um, and so that state in itself, regardless of whether you decide you're better than, equal to, or less than someone else, it's the very state of comparing that is, is that gnawing anxiety. And that sometimes is considered the near enemy of sympathetic joy. Mm-hmm.
1: So as far as... Uh Compassion versus grief. Um, so equanimity helps to develop to cultivate compassion. But um, if you're if you're grieving and feeling compassion at the same time, I have two questions. Actually, if you're feeling compassion and grieving at the same time, um, how do you how do you like balance that? So how do you get how do you get to equanimity? And what's the difference between equanimity and detachment or what's the difference between equanimity and surrender and my sense is that you can feel it fully and just um feel those feelings without like going over the end of them is that a little bit a I need you to talk a bit
0: about that. Mm-hmm. Time? um a question one of the questions was about equanimity and is that the same as detachment or surrender and, um it might be, depending on how you use the word. I mean, surrender is a very tricky word to use because it can sometimes have the air of succumbing, you know. Um, I really think of equanimity as the voice of wisdom. It's saying, this is how things are. Um, that there's pleasure and pain in life. It's not going to flatten out. No matter how much I try to make everything okay, um, it's not going to be all according to my. Master plan, you know, um, life just isn't like that. And that there's some situations where we cannot make the suffering go away. We will never be able to make the suffering go away. Um, and yet, that doesn't mean there's nothing we can do, uh, because the expression of compassion in that moment is the degree of our presence. You know, the, the example I often use about that is this time when we, um, pretty soon after we first opened the center in Barry, um, we invited the Dalai Lama to come for a visit. And he, it was his first trip to the United States in 1979. And much to our amazement, we got a letter back saying, yes, I'll come. And It was quite... I mean, There's nothing like it is now in terms of security and so on, but still, it was pretty intense for us. The the center is about two and a half miles outside of the center of Barry, uh, on a road called Pleasant Street, and we had a blockade Pleasant Street, and we had state troopers patrolling the roofs with guns, you know. So it's like it would it was here, you know, um, except more rural. So it was a very intense scene, and and just before he came. Um, I'd been in a car accident and I had a broken bone in my foot and I was using crutches which I was not very dexterous with. So when the morning came that he was arriving, I was standing way in the back of this crowd of like a hundred people. And I was feeling a lot of self pity. You know, I was thinking, Oh, you know, I'm way in the back, I'm all left out, this is so terrible and it's my center and I can't even be up front. If it was up front I'd fall on my face, you know, that'd be terrible, even worse, you know. And, And I was I was very uh, caught in that, and then his car pulled up and in the middle of this very zooy scene, you know, with all these people and the troopers and, and the whole thing. He got out of his car and he did something I've seen him do many times since, but it was the first time I'd seen it, which is that he seems to have a kind of radar for who in a crowd is suffering the most, and he just goes there, and that was me, you know, I in. Reflection. I don't even remember him having time to like scan the crowd or something like that. He he got out of the car. He made a beeline through a hundred people. He came up to me. He took my hand, looked me in the eye, and said, "What happened?"
1: <laughs> you know. And it was so beautiful
0: because um, you know there was nothing he could do to take away the injury, and there was nothing he could do to take away. Uh, or make me more skillful or dexterous with the use of the crutches, but that terrible, isolated feeling of being so alone and um, so uncared about, that was gone with that one simple gesture. And that became, for me, ever since, kind of the symbol of compassionate action. You know, how many times do we not do that much because we think, I can't make the injury go away? You know, often, actually, Mm -hmm. You know, we don't put our hearts forward. We don't try. We don't express that presence because we're not going to be able to eradicate it all. Um, and that's why equanimity doesn't take away our ability to act. It actually increases our ability to act because we, we can come forward without all of those strings attached. Like, well, if you're not better by tomorrow, you know, then I'm, I'm out of here, you know. Um, you know, and that sounds funny, but that's really what we do in some way. Um I have this whole chapter actually in my last book um, on faith and fear. And it's about what it was like uh, for this community of friends when Ramdas had a stroke. And what it was like to move between wanting to feel in control and he was definitely going to be this way and this was going to get better and, you know, and then letting go and realizing we didn't know what was going to happen. And then, you know, kind of getting all caught up in that again and then realizing, I don't know. You know, and in the not knowing, there was actually more room for presence and being there and being willing to accompany him. Um, I say in the, in the chapters, actually, I realized at one point that he was going into the unknown. And the only way to go there with him fully was to admit that. You know, otherwise it was all trying to contour reality according to our own wishes and it doesn't work. And so that's really that kind of equanimity. Or you could say detachment, you could say surrender, but it's a little uh, hard, you know, with the words because they can mean so many things. But that's what it is. It, it doesn't leave us um, removed, but it actually lets us act with wisdom. Because otherwise, when we're such control freaks, you know, that uh, it's awfully hard to be really present and admit we don't know how it's going to go. No? Yeah. And the question was about finding it easier, and it's not just you, (laughs) finding it easier to feel sympathetic joy for people we like than for people we don't like and and how when somebody we don't like has success or good fortune we feel annoyed. Um... (laughs) And what should one do? Like practice loving kindness. And you might, or usually, it's actually compassion meditation that is often our doorway to sympathetic joy. You know, because when we don't like somebody, um, we might easily overlook their own pain or their fragility or their vulnerability. And if we stop a moment and just to remember... Even if they're not in terrible suffering, just to be alive means that we have that vulnerability, we have that fragility. Um, and if we can just remember that for a moment, then usually what happens through the compassion is that we um, we don't really wish for this person to only suffer and only suffer and only suffer. You know there's, there's just more room that's created so think, oh yeah. Yeah, be happy, <laughs> you know, it's okay. Um, and the other thing is really always um, understanding that any practice of generosity, and all of these are practices of generosity, come from a certain sense of inner abundance. And um, inner abundance is not tied to external abundance, strangely enough. I mean my experience certainly in Burma and it can be felt anywhere in the world uh, but Burma was one of my primary examples of it was um, you know, when you go to meditate in a country like Burma you don't pay anything even for room and board because the people feeding you um, every bite of food you have in those monasteries is offered by people and it's a very, very poor country and people always will offer you the best that they can and they're so happy to give it you know, so sometimes I'd be in Burma, and I'd, I'd see these extremely poor people come and take care of all of us, and they had so little. And then I'd come back here, <laughs> you know, and there'd be situations where people had so much, and they didn't feel it. You know, they didn't recognize it. I just had lunch with Gil, um, and he was telling me about somebody we both know, who's a a therapist in Los Angeles. And this person told him he has one client that's in therapy with him because he has $60 million and he doesn't feel he has enough money. (laughs) You know, he feels poor. Um, You know, it's not an external truth. It's an internal truth. And, you know, what lets us have that feeling that we can let someone else enjoy, that we we can be grateful for what we have? You know, it means being in touch with it. It means really having a sense of that inner wealth in some way so that we're not um, threatened by the wealth. I don't mean just wealth, physical, you know, material wealth, but the good things of life that someone else has. Yeah. When you say inner
1: wealth, you mean like spiritual
0: mm-hmm. being yeah.
1: happy with
0: yourself. Yeah, I mean spiritual well-being, being happy with yourself, just having a sense of um, strength, inner strength. Um, so that, it's not that we don't want, you know, or um, try to procure the things that we think would make us happy, but there's not that edge, you know, of of desperation. Because really, you know, we're out of control. And um, it's only that kind of inner strength that's going to sustain it 's like I, I saw Ram Das not too long ago. Um, i don 't remember if I told this story in August when I was here, but I saw him in July uh, when I was teaching at spirit rock and uh, you know I, I wrote this whole chapter about him practically you know and and so his stroke was um, a very impactful thing in my life as well as in his and uh, he came to dinner when we were teaching at spirit rock and and then at the end of dinner, we all had to go somewhere and do something, and um, including him. And uh, he was in a wheelchair subsequent to his stroke. And he um, wheeled to the edge of the stairs of this little building there. And for some reason, he decided he wanted to walk down the stairs instead of going down the ramp. And so um, it meant somebody had to lift him out of his wheelchair and hold him up and then... Uh, We hastily disassembled his wheelchair and then leaning on this person, step by laborious step, he went down the stairs, he got to the bottom and we put together his wheelchair really fast and the person holding him had a turn and practically dropped him, you know, finally got him in the wheelchair and then those of you who've been to Spirit Rock know it's really hilly so I had this terrible moment where I thought, oh God, he's going to just like go down the hill, Um, you know, we grabbed the wheelchair and and, uh, and then he wheeled himself over to the edge of the car door and hoisted himself up to get in the car. So he's, he's leaning on the edge of the car door and he's standing right in front of me. And this whole time, my heart was just sinking. And I thought, oh, look what effort it takes for him just to go out to dinner, you know. And, and this is so laborious and this is so burdensome and this is awful. And, you know, so I was thinking that and I'm sure it was written all over my face as well. And... He took a look at me, and he gave me a beautiful, radiant smile, and he said, none of this makes any difference at all. You know that.
1: <laughs> and I thought, I do know that. <laughs> I forgot that. I do know that.
0: You know, and I think he was saying that not because he was sullen you know, and uh, resentful and trying to pretend, but because he is in touch with something else. You know, It's not that it makes no difference and you shouldn't do physical therapy and you shouldn't try to walk you know, and all of that. But um, at a deeper level, it's what can we rely on? You know, that's the sense that, that that kind of inner strength is. You know, and it does allow us to give. I think one cultivates it. Um, maintain is maybe not exactly the right word, but one cultivates it and then comes back in touch with it, um, largely through practice. You know, it's it's learning not to get distracted by the things that can distract us learning not to blame ourselves for the things we can't control. Um, One of the things about our society is very much oriented toward the achievement of pleasure and the avoidance of pain, you know, so that when we do feel pain, we feel unhappy, we feel afraid, we have a physical problem, we tend to feel quite isolated in that. You know, it's not something that people talk about or share very easily. You know, it's something we're taught we should be ashamed of, that we failed in a way because we haven't managed to control it. I have a friend who's um, uh, just turned 40. And um, she uh, is quite well known in certain, in certain spheres. And so she just wrote me and she said, um, she was uh, thinking of lying about her age and saying she had just turned 37. But because she's, she's kind of well-known, she said a friend told her she saw her name on the crawl on CNN, you know, that little tick, ticker tape thing that goes on the bottom, saying so-and-so just turned 40.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: so there went that, you know. <laughs> um, and she was joking anyway, you know, but... Um, you know, that's how the society is, sort of. You know, it's like if you get older, if you're sick, if you're dying, if you're afraid, it's wrong. You shouldn't, this shouldn't happen. And so it's very hard uh, for us, you know, to admit those things, to admit that they're natural. But that's wisdom. You know, and, and so that's the effort, is to see what we were never responsible for to begin with, to let that be, to look deeper. Um, it's the whole nature of spiritual life, really is to find those strengths, those things we can count on and not be confused by all of those other messages. So you can do it. You know, we have to do it. So. Yeah.
1: How do you pay attention to tending to your own needs and yet letting someone care for you and in the way you say someone has trouble walking? People love to help. And for me, I could give up and have to be wheeled around but my own needs, I want to stay as independent as I can. But I, I
0: want to accept their loving help. It seems a dichotomy. Well, the question was about accepting the um, loving help of somebody else and still taking care of one's own needs, which might be to be as independent as possible. And I think that's great. You know, to um, accept someone's help doesn't necessarily mean to accept their definition of what we need. Um, but you know, it also might mean um, accepting their effort, or accepting their presence, accepting their energy. And Ramdas, for example, will say that, and it's true—he was um, not independent, but kind of difficult to give anything to. <laughs> you know, and he'll say this himself. Um, uh, I mean, you couldn't even give him a birthday present, you know. And it was much easier for him to give than to receive. And now he's in a position where he has to receive all of the time, and that's part of his learning, you know, is to let that in. Um, if you don't want to let it in in the particular form in which somebody is offering still, I think it's it's like receiving their energy and the sincerity of their their effort, you know.
1: That,
0: um, about the, in the in your you talk about the proximate um, cause, for minute, also <laughs> cause is the is a concept in the Buddhist psychology about um, uh, the nearest arising condition or the likely springboard for something else to arise. Um, it's not the only condition, but it's the thing that makes this other thing come more easily. So the proximate cause of, of metta to arise um, is actually twofold. The first is seeing the goodness in someone, um, and that begins with ourselves. You know how we can obsess about the mistakes we've made and the negative things we've done, and we don't give equal airtime by any means You know to the time when we could easily have told a lie and we didn't or we were a little more generous or something like that. And um, to see the good in someone doesn't mean ignoring all the rest, which is the fear, you know, that it's this kind of deluded state. But it's true. It's like if you think of one good thing about someone, there's a bridge built, there's some feeling of connection. Whereas if you... um, obsess about the harm they've caused only, then uh, you know, the real complexity of a being is usually more than, than the one act. Um, and so if we obsess about the harm, then we, we kind of overlook some bigger picture. And if we can think of even one little good thing then there 's just some sense of connection from which vantage point we can honestly and directly look at the difficulty you know, so it 's not meant to make you kind of foolish, but uh, really to change change perspectives and it actually does work. I was you know as I said, I was in Burma when I was first practicing these things intensively, and um, I got the instruction from my teacher Saita Upandita, to do that to um, think of the good in certain people. And my first thought was, I don't want to do that. I'm not going to do that. You know, that's what stupid people do. <laughs> they just kind of go around looking for the good in people. And I don't even like people who do that, you know? Like, that. But, um, as I usually tell the story, which is true, it's I was very far from home in a Burmese monastery. And the nature of the teacher-student relationship in a very traditional culture like that is not one where the teacher says... You should do something, and you say, "I don't feel like it." (laughs) You know, it's not a good idea. You do it. You know, so I did it, and much to my amazement, it actually worked. It worked in exactly the way it was supposed to work. You know, not that I entered this world of uh, just pretending everything was okay, but I had a different feeling about these people as I focused on on the good. And so that's the first proximate cause of metta is looking for the good. And and then there are times when genuinely we will not find it. You know, we just can't. And so um, the other reflection that's done is the reflection that all beings everywhere want to be happy, that all beings want to be happy, just like us. And that our urge for happiness is not a bad thing. You know, sometimes when people are doing the metaphrase and they say, may I be happy, they hear themselves doing it in a tone like, may I be happy? Like, no way, you know? (laughs) Like, I don't deserve that. Um... But that urge toward happiness is a very, very fine thing because when it's combined with wisdom about where happiness is really to be found instead of ignorance, as it often is, then it is like like a homing instinct for freedom. Then we can cut through many obstacles. We deserve to be happy. We all deserve to be happy. Um, And so when we look at somebody else... um, The problem is not the urge to be happy. The problem is the ignorance, which tells us to behave in certain ways that actually cause more and more suffering. And so we can feel a kinship with beings based on that, that all beings want to be happy. So that's the proximate cause of metta, is those two things. And then the proximate cause of faith is said to be suffering, which is peculiar. um, Because, uh, and in some ways, that was part of my impulse to write the book uh, was to explore that. Now what in the world can that mean? <laughs> Since everybody suffers and not everybody by any means emerges with faith. You know, some sense of connection and, and love and so on. So um, yet to realize that that's possible was, was very intriguing to me. And so um, that's what the proximate cause of faith is, is suffering. Yeah. And the question was about if we're saying, may I be happy, is it opposed to, you know, may I be unhappy and and therefore only, uh, I'll paraphrase, only opening to kind of half of our existence and um, wishing to not really be there? No, I think, you know, there's a distinction that can be made between happiness and pleasure. Um, If you're wishing, by the word happiness, which also means many different things to many different people, if by happiness you mean pleasure and you're wishing for only pleasant experience, then it's, um, it is very, uh, first of all, it's impossible. And <laughs> second of all, um, it's uh, it's got that tone that you're describing of like, you know, may I ward off all difficulty and may I never have a challenge and may I, you know, it's, life just isn't like that. Um, what I found was, because I was practicing in Burma, which was very traditional, there wasn't much emphasis on changing the phrases to be personally meaningful for you, you know, which is how we teach. Um, but it was more like, here are your phrases. And which phrases you got also depended on the translator of the day. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so like Joseph, for example, who was practicing... Uh, the second time I went to Burma to do the practice, he was also there, also doing metta. And he got a different set of phrases because he had the same, a different translator, you know, same teacher. Um, but what I found was because I didn't have that flexibility, you know, to just shift phrases, um, was that the meaning of happiness kept changing for me as I kept doing it. And I just kept entering these different realms of subtlety and nuance as, as it went on. You know? So um, I went through you know, a more superficial sense of what happiness was. And, and then as I kept doing it, it just deepened. So it was something very different than the mere experience of pleasure. Okay, why don't we take a break for like 10 minutes and then we'll come back and sit, okay? I'll be here if you want to ask anything.